0: Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 39.
1: For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Let's pray. Lord, you are our shepherd. We shall not want. Lord, you make us lie down in green pastures. You lead us beside still waters. You restore our souls. You lead us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil for you are with us. Your rod and your staff, they comfort us. You have prepared a table before us in the presence of our enemies. You've anointed our heads with oil. Our cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our lives and we will dwell in your house forever. Father, as we come before your word, Lord, we pray that you would prepare that banquet in the presence of our enemies, in the presence of all the struggles that we have, the difficulties, the things that lie in our way, the things that have bogged us down. And we pray, Lord, that you'd give us the bold assurance that you are with us and that all is well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you guys ever felt like leaving Jesus? Have you guys ever come to a place in your Christian life where you just felt like either your struggle with sin or just the struggle of dealing with suffering just seemed too much to bear? And you had thoughts of maybe it'd be a whole lot easier without him. You know, the demands that he has, he places on your life either in areas of of, uh, his law, his commands, or just in the things he's calling you to do, you just, I can't do this anymore. I think that every believer is brought to that place eventually. The original readers of this book, Hebrews, were tempted because of persecution to leave Christ. They came to a place where they just felt like maybe it would be easier without him. So the writer of Hebrews is deeply burdened for these people. It seems that he knows them personally. He writes this letter to them, and he uses both wonder and warning to draw them back to Christ. He uses wonder, showing them again and again how amazing Jesus is, and we've seen that in Hebrews, right? This is amazing passages of how amazing Jesus is. That's the wonder part. And then he uses warning. He wants to show us how great our danger would be without him. And this is the fourth warning in Hebrews uh, against falling away from Jesus. And I mentioned this before when I did the other warning passages, but there's always some new person here, and I just want to make sure I make myself really clear. I don't believe that this passage or the rest of Scripture teaches that Christians can lose their salvation. They can't. And I could go through a whole list of verses. Um, We could just look a little bit further up in the chapter at verse 14. He's already said that those who come to Christ and trust in him are perfected for all time. Sounds pretty solid, right? Perfected in that we've been made right before God, and we've been made right before God for all time, permanently. So you come to Christ... You're permanently in him. So it's kind of unimaginable that later in the same chapter, he'd be like talking about people losing their salvation. That's not what he's talking about here in this warning against walking away. But there are reasons why people think this passage teaches that. And it's because the people that he's talking about walking away from Christ, they look like Christians, okay? They are people who, verse 26 says, had received the knowledge of the truth, right? And now it's easy to imagine that someone could have received the knowledge of the truth, but not actually put their have saving faith in Christ, right? He says that these people, verse 30, are in some sense um, God's people. Take a look at verse 30. It says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again, the Lord will judge his people. So there, in some sense, these people that walk away from Christ were, in some sense, God's people. If we think about the Old Testament, it kind of makes sense of this, because in the Old Testament, you can think of there were God's corporate people, But there were some that believed and some didn't believe, right? And so in the church, it's the same way. We have some that are believers and some that aren't. These are people, these people who walk away from Christ, it says are in some sense sanctified by the blood of the covenant. That's the strongest language in here. It's from verse 29. It speaks of those who leave Christ that were, they had profaned the blood of the covenant by which they've been sanctified. Let me just explain that. Sanctified means to be set apart. And so these are people who are in some sense set apart by Christ's blood, but later leave him, okay? And, and we could also turn to the Old Testament to think about that too. Just like in the Exodus, guys, there were uh, all the Jews, they had put the blood of the uh, Passover lamb on their doorposts, right? So that they could not be killed by the, the angel of death there. Um, But not all those who put the blood on their doorposts were believers, right? And we see that later in the story, right? As we see them go out in the Exodus, we can see that not all of them had true saving faith. Their leaving, guys, shows that they were never really saved in the first place. That's the way to think about this. If somebody, you know, leaves and they never return to Christ, some people leave for a time and they return. But people that never return, the way to think about it biblically is that they, they never really were saved in the first place, and their leaving shows that. So who's this warning for? This warning is for anyone who has come to the knowledge of the truth, who's been a part of God's visible people and yet is thinking about throwing it all away and leaving Jesus. Okay? That's who this warning is for. So this warning is very it's it's really to all of us. It's to anyone who has known the truth, been a part of God's people and then is thinking about throwing it all away. Not that true Christians can lose their salvation, but the warning is there for all those that fit that category. Let me tell you, though, before we start, who this warning is not for. This is important. This warning is not for people that are believers that are fighting their sin. They hate their sin. They they fight it every day. Um, They're not always successful in fighting their sin. They fall back into it. Every time they fall back into it, they draw near to God and they get fresh forgiveness and fresh freedom. This warning is not for them. Because I know for some Christians that have really fought besetting sin and just have been kind of entangled in their sin, and they're fighting it as hard as they know how, and they're trying to fight by the power of the Spirit, they keep falling in. Some of them have heard this verse, verse 26, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, they think, that's me. If you hate your sin, and you're fighting your sin, and you keep coming back to Christ, this is not for you. This warning is for people that fall away from Jesus permanently. This is a warning against apostasy. Apostasy just means to fall away. This is a warning for anyone who calls themselves a Christian, but now because of either suffering or because of sin, is thinking life would be easier without Jesus. It's for anyone who, like the original readers, thinks that the hardship of following Jesus just isn't worth it anymore, right? And this is a really practical message, guys, and I think you guys can feel that. We live in an age where there's a ton of, like, deconversion stories online. You can watch these things on the Internet. This is a time when many cultural Christians are finding that there's no cultural advantage anymore to following Jesus. We're in a time of, of, of a lot of apostasy. This is personal for some of you guys because you have relatives that you're aching over that were once professing Christ, and now they're not. And I think what the writer of Hebrews is doing here is he's, he's wanting to plead with such a person, You know, he's wanting to plead with them to return to Christ. He's going to plead with them not to leave him. What he says here is he says, before you leave Jesus, before you leave Jesus, let me show you the danger of leaving him. That's in verses 26 through 27. And he says, before you leave Jesus, please see the wrongness of leaving him. Verse 29. And then he says, before you leave Jesus, remember the hope that you'd be leaving behind. That's verse 32 and 34. And then at the end, he says, hold on to that hope. It won't be much longer. Okay? And it's such a wonderfully pastoral passage. You can imagine the writer of Hebrews sitting across a table from somebody over coffee or something like that, and this person, he's seeing signs of them drifting. He's seeing signs of them just wanting to let go of Jesus, and then he pleads with them. And what's neat is he pleads with them on different levels. When you first read the passage, all you hear is the fear part, and it's real, by the way, and we'll do it, but there's other motivations he gives here, too. To those who have hardened hearts, he has that motivation of danger and fear. To those with open hearts, he says, hey, look at how wrong this is. And then to those who are just weary, he has a word of encouragement, which really models for us how we ought to engage with people. It's not there's one instrument for every person. Oh, you need fear. Boom, 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 boom. Or... You just need a back rub. You just need encouragement. And it's like, no, not everybody, different people need different things. And it's beautiful that he uses different motivations for different hearts. So let's start with the fear part. He says, before you leave Jesus... See the danger of leaving him. Look at verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. He says, you know, before you leave Jesus, see the danger of leaving him right and this is the danger every sinner is in outside of Christ he says if you leave Christ there's no other solution for your sin look at verse 26 he says there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin because, guys, it's faith in Christ that puts us in Christ. And then when we're in Christ, we're covered by his blood. We're covered by his righteousness. Just like the, like I mentioned earlier, the Old Testament saints who put the blood on the doorposts of their homes and they were protected from God's judgment. When we trust in Christ, we're covered by his righteousness, by his blood covering our sin. And what he's saying here is if you leave Christ, you don't have that protection. And the rest of Hebrews kind of talks about that, right? That there's no other sacrifice for sin. He says, if you leave Christ, all you'll have left is the dread of judgment day. Look at verse 27. He says, a fearful expectation of judgment. Guys, this is true for everyone that's outside of Christ. There is a day set in the future. We don't know that date, but we do know that at our death or when Christ returns, our, our, our fate is sealed. Our future is set. We're either in Christ at that time or we're not. You know, we've either come to him and come into Christ and and we're safe for that day or we never trusted in him and we're outside of Christ. And he's saying here that if you leave Christ, all you have left is a fearful expectation of that day. Um, I, I love Revelation 20 for this. It's such a powerful passage on the judgment. It says, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it and from his presence, earth and sky fled away. And no room was found for them. And then I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And the books were open, And another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. I think that's worthy of some serious meditation, you know, especially if you're thinking that maybe, you know, life would be better without Jesus. Meditate on that, you know. I mean, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you might be willing to say, yeah, I've done some bad things or I'm not perfect. Most people will. But guys, you have no idea. I have no idea how much sin I have. Because we just compare ourselves to each other, right? We don't compare ourselves to God's holiness. Guys, on that day, it says heaven and earth flee away. I don't even know what that would mean. And there's the throne, and there's God, and there's you. We have no idea. On that day, the lights will come up fully, and there'll be nothing to hide our sin, and every sin will be seen and will be compared to the holiness of God And we'll be totally overwhelmed by how incredibly defiled we are if we don't have Jesus' covering. We'll just suddenly see the reality and we'll be like, was this always here? You know. And we'll see that God is totally right to judge. Every person that stands before him outside of Christ and has their sin exposed that moment is going to know at that moment that God is completely just to judge them. And that there's no way he can't because there's just so much sin. It's just undeniable and inexcusable. Here's the amazing thing about the gospel. If you come to Christ, your judgment day, your future judgment day, got moved to the past to when Jesus was judged on the cross for you. Isn't that amazing? So you don't have this fearful expectation of judgment because your judgment day was moved from the future to the past. Your sin was already judged on the cross. Isn't that amazing? So that you have no fearful expectation of judgment. If you're in Christ this morning, you should have no fearful expectation of judgment. If you're not in Christ, you could receive him today. You could just ask him to cover you with his righteousness and have you. And you would have no fearful expectation of judgment. Hebrews 9 talks about the coming of Jesus this way. That he will appear a second time not to deal with sin, our sin, but to save those who eagerly wait for him. So instead of having a fearful expectation of judgment, you could be eagerly awaiting him. He says here, if you leave Jesus, you'll, be, you'll face a f- fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. That's verse 27. He's talking about hell here. He's talking about the eternal punishment that our sins deserve. And he's very explicit here that that punishment, eternal punishment in hell, is far worse than death. He makes that point in verse 20 se- 28. He says, anyone who sets aside the law of Moses died without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think, will be deserved by the one who has trampled the Son of God underfoot. He's making a case here of like um, earthly punishment for sin in the Old Testament was his death penalty. And what what we await, if we're not in Christ, which you await is something far worse. People like to think that it's just death, it's just annihilation, it's just, you know, you get snuffed out. That argument, though, would make no sense if that were the case, right? He says, how much worse punishment? And we can see why that punishment is due in verse 27 because it says that our sin has made us his adversaries. Like if you're not in Christ, you're his adversary. Isn't that crazy? Sin, guys, is a declaration of war against God. I mean, talk about making the wrong enemies, right? It's a declaration of war against God. He says a fire that consumes the enemies. Verse 31 puts it super chillingly, right? It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And that should be the most fearful thing we can think of, right? And it is. It's the most fearful thing. And you know how it's the, we know that this is the most fearful thing? To fall into the hands of the living God with sin on you? You know how we know that this is the most fearful thing ever? We know because the most fearless man that ever lived collapsed in fear before it. Do you know when that happened? Yeah, Garden of Gethsemane, right? Jesus, the most fearless man that ever lived, when he saw that judgment that he was going to take for us, collapsed in fear before it. Guys, in the gospel, we have God himself falling into the fearful hands of God for us. And Jesus didn't just fall in. He jumped in, right? He took that willingly for you. He chose to take the penalty of your sin for you. Guys, in the gospel, what we have, a really simple way of putting it, I've heard it somewhere, I don't know where, But the gospel is that the love of God made an escape for us from the wrath of God by sacrificing the Son of God. So the love of God made a way of escape for us from the wrath of God by sacrificing the Son of God. And so what we have here in verses 26 and 27, he's saying if we reject that, if we reject the love of God and we reject the Son of God, all we have left is the wrath of God. And I just want to plead with you guys, because that's what the writer of Hebrews is doing here. He's sitting over a table with somebody, and he's just pleading with them. Before you leave Jesus, if you're thinking about it, it would be easier without him. Maybe you'd be able to live in some way that you've always wanted to live, or you'd be able to you know, be released from some sort of responsibilities or burdens. He said, before you leave Jesus, see the danger of it, right? Don't let any short-term pleasure or short-term pain Keep you from everlasting happiness, guys. Jesus has freed us from everlasting misery. There's nothing in life that would be more important than making sure you have Christ forever. So He doesn't just show us the danger, though, which is neat. He also shows us the wrongness of it. Take a look at this. Starts in, it's in verse 29. He says, before you leave Jesus, see the wrongness of leaving it. Because it's, it's not just dangerous to leave Christ, it's also wrong. It's also a personal offense against Jesus. I didn't see this in the beginning when I first read the passage, how many different layers of motivation there are. But he switches here and he really wants to show us how wrong it is. Because leaving Jesus isn't like other life decisions It isn't like, you know, you decided you wanted a different job, you know, so you went somewhere else, or you moved, or you canceled your Netflix subscription, or something like that. It's not like that, right? Those aren't personal things. They shouldn't be super personal, right? Some people treat changing their faith like that, that it's nothing personal. You know, it was this, and it was that, and I dabbled in this, and this worked better for me, and I kind of like this instead, right? But what this passage tells us is that leaving Jesus is not like canceling your subscription, It's personal. It's really personal against him. Look at verse 28. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think, and then here's the wrongness of it, will be deserved by the one who has trampled the Son of God underfoot and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace. He's saying, before you leave, see the wrongness of it. Because leaving Jesus is like trampling him under your feet. That's so what he says, right, in verse 29? He says, the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God. Do you guys see how personal apostasy is? You know, it isn't just like, yeah, Christianity didn't work for me, and I kind of liked Buddhism, and I liked meditating. And It's not like that, guys. It's super personal. It's trampling underfoot the Son of God, Right? There's all these deconversion stories on the internet, and they're kind of reverse testimonies. They're like, I was a Christian, and then here's why, and here's how I left, and here are the reasons, and things like that. And people have all kinds of brutal things that have happened to them. I don't want to minimize those things. But these kind of deconversion stories are kind of touted as being brave, right, and honest, and enlightened, and authentic, and sometimes even gracious, Christians Christianity is real judgmental, but, you know, I'm not that way, so I left. You know, that kind of a thing, right? They're seen as brave and honest and authentic and stuff. Guys, we need to see these deconversion stories, though, from Jesus' perspective. You know what Jesus' perspective is? It's from under their feet. Right? It's from under their feet. He says, you trample the Son of God under your foot. You know, you walk over Him. In Christ, we have... God himself humbling himself to lay down his life for us, right? To lay down his life for us. And the thing is, if we're going to walk out on him, we're going to have to walk over him, right? We're going to walk over him. We're going to trample him, right? He's made himself that vulnerable, which is amazing. God has made himself vulnerable to be trampled on. And he's the only God that has, by the way. I don't know if you've studied other religions. This is not common. Right? No other God has laid himself down for sinners to be trampled on. He says that leaving Jesus means profaning the blood of the covenant. He says that in verse twenty nine. But to profane, I think we use that word a lot more strongly. To profane means just to make common, to say it's no big deal. So what it is here is is saying that a person that leaves Christ for their sin or security is just is saying that Jesus' blood is nothing special. Nothing special about it, right? Certainly not worth like it's certainly not worth in any way limiting your freedom or changing the course of your life for. I mean, just because Jesus died for you doesn't mean you should, you know, limit your freedom at all or, right, change your life at all. But guys, his blood here, the blood of the covenant, is his love for you, and there is nothing common about his love, right? The person that profanes the blood of the covenant is, is a person that leaves thinking, you know what, I, I can find love like this other places. This is common, you know, I have a, a, a girlfriend that will love me like that. I have a, a boyfriend that will love me like that. I have, I have other people that will love me like that. And the thing is, is that no one's going to love you like Jesus. There's nothing common about his love. He says that leaving Jesus outrages the spirit of grace. Look at verse 29. He says, by which he was sanctified, he has outraged the spirit of grace. This is, this is, outrage is a word we know, right? It's the age of outrage guys outraged? You know, you go on your phone because maybe you want to feel alive, you know? Maybe you want to feel righteous. And so you find something to outrage you. And there's plenty of stuff. And some of it's true. Most of it's probably not. But we live in an age of outrage, right? We want to be outraged. If you're not outraged, you're not paying attention. But the Holy Spirit here he, he wants to show us what the true outrage is the true outrage is walking out on jesus and you got to see it from the holy spirit's perspective he says that a person that that leaves christ for their sin or leaves christ um, because they don't want the burdens of him that it outrages the spirit of grace and you got to see it from the holy spirit's perspective because the holy spirit what he loves to do more than anything is point to jesus he's constantly like look at jesus look how amazing he is let me show you some more things that would just get you really stoked. and just Let me show you all the things you can enjoy in Christ. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Jesus said that. He said, he will bear witness to me. He just wants to point at Jesus all the time. Cast a lot on Jesus. He wants you to enjoy Jesus. So what outrages the Spirit is when we've had a good long look at Christ, maybe over several years, and then we just toss him aside. Spirit's outraged. Makes sense, right? Notice here that the Spirit here is called the Spirit of Grace. This is wild, because the thing that's being rejected, if we reject Jesus, it was we're rejecting grace. A lot of people leave Christianity, and they go, like, I was just tired of all the rules. And I would just say, is that what you thought this was about? Really? You thought that this was all about the rules? You thought this was all about we wanted to get you guys all stoked about a bunch of rules, and we could all judge each other on whether we're keeping them or not, and... You know, we could feel better than other people about how well we're doing. Is that what you thought this was? You know, he's like, this was all about grace. <laughs> this was all about Jesus giving you grace. We only brought up your sin so you would see how much you need Jesus. Like, this is about grace. And, and the thing is, to reject the law is one thing, verse 28. You know, to reject the law is one thing, but to reject grace, like, the Spirit's outraged, Right? So he says, before you leave, see the danger of leaving. Before you leave, see the wrongness of leaving. And then there's this beautiful, wonderful change of tone. Did you guys notice it? Take a look at it and see where it's at. There's a beautiful change of tone. It's in verse 32. Listen to it. So you hear all this stuff that I just said, and then he says this. But recall the former days. When after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew you had a better possession and an abiding one. Isn't that a cool change of tone? That's what I didn't notice when I first saw this passage. I just saw the fear part, and I was like, okay, there's multiple motivations here. You know, it's dangerous to leave Christ. It's wrong. And then, like, look at your hope. It's a cool change of pace. It's the same kind of thing that happens in Hebrews 6. You remember there was like a blistering warning there, followed by this. Though we speak this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things belonging to salvation. Isn't that wonderful? He comes back around and he goes, he's just like, I, I, I know you want Christ, actually. Isn't that cool? So he motivates them here, not with fear like he did earlier, but with hope. And this is a cool moment to just like take a moment and just think about that the Bible gives different motivations to repent based on different hearts. And I think this is really cool, and I think sometimes we miss this. Some Christians say like that you know, Christians should never be motivated by fear, right? But as we saw in this passage, the Bible's good with you being motivated by fear when you need it, right? Should a, should a believer be motivated to repent out of fear? It depends. If they need it, if that's all that will work, then thank God it's there, right? How many of you guys have been rescued from a very scary passage of scripture that kind of pulled you back from the cliff of sin? How many of you guys? How many of you guys have the Lord just used fear sometimes as a believer? How many of you guys were thankful for that? Super thankful for that, right? Like, it's not that a Christian should be motivated by fear all the time. I'm not saying that. I think that's actually super unhealthy and not the way we're supposed to be led. But there's a range, right? There's fear. That's verses 26 through 27. There's shame, verse 29. There's other motivations. See, so like, fear, you have shame, you have, um, I love the Proverbs. The Proverbs motivations usually like, don't be dumb, <laughs> right? There's no, like, super spiritual motivation there. It's just like, here's what the wise man does, and the idiot does this, don't be the dummy, that's cool, though, right? That's a different motivation. Sometimes we need that. Jesus sometimes motivated with rewards, right? And there's other passages that motivate with rewards. There's the motivation of just doing it because it's right, because God's law is good. When our heart's good, we're just like, why wouldn't I do it? This is right, you know? And there's the motivation of wanting to be more like the Father. There's the motivation of wanting to be more like Christ. There's the motivation of doing it because the hope we have in Christ, which we're going to see here in this passage. There's the motivation of, like, gratitude for grace. There's the motivation of love for God. You see, there's a spectrum of motivations, right, here. And so fear, fear should be rare, okay? As a believer, perfect love casts out fear. Like, fear should be a rare motive. But if you're really hard-hearted and that's all you'll listen to, praise God it's there, right? I'm thankful for it. Like, I would like a nice hard guardrail over here if nothing else works, Right? But what we should mainly be motivated by is by gratitude for grace, right? I think you guys notice in our services and stuff, we're constantly trying to motivate you by gratitude for the grace of God, um, out of love for God. But he shifts motivations here, right? He shifts, not doing fear like he did before, but with hope. He wants to give hope of the gospel to these weary people. It's like he's saying, like, come on, like, we both know you don't want to leave Jesus, right? Right? He's like I know your life has been brutal. Okay? And I and I and I know that it's made you weary and I know that you've had thoughts that you know maybe it'd be easier without Jesus, but I just want to remind you the hope you had and the hope that used to keep you going. I want you to hold on to that and it's not going to be much longer. Right? That's a different motive, right? He says, remember your hope that you used to have. Look at verse 32. But recall the former days when you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. He's like, man, remember back when you first got saved? You remember how they beat you up like crazy? He's like, remember how you didn't care who knew you were a Christian, and you didn't care what they did to you? Like, remember that? Remember how, like, when other believers would get thrown into prison, you would go there and care for them, realizing that your house is probably being robbed while you're away? And you did all that. And then he's like, why did you do that? Right? Remember why? Remember the hope that used to drive you? Right? R- remember not just the good you used to do, but why you did it? And he gives the reason in 34. He says that you did all this stuff because you knew that you yourselves have a better possession and an abiding one. He's like, you knew you had something better. He's just trying to remind him, like, it's in there somewhere. Somewhere you remember this. Somewhere there's some faith and hope. Let me, like, dig around and see if you can find it. Like, you used to know that you could lose all your possessions, you could lose your home, you could lose your career, you could lose your family, you could lose your life, you could lose everything, and you would still have everything. Like, you used to know that. Isn't that cool, what he's doing there? He's like, let's drill down, it's got to be in there somewhere. I remember you having this hope, you know? The 4th century African bishop, Augustine, he said this, he who has God has everything, even if he has nothing else. He who has everything else but not God has nothing, and he who has God plus everything else has nothing more than he who has God alone. Augustine knew what he was talking about, right? Let me read it for you again. I feel like this should be a diagram, maybe an equation. <laughs> he who has God has everything, even if he has nothing else, and he who has everything else but not God has nothing, and he who has God plus everything has nothing more than he who has God alone. The writer of Hebrews is saying to these people, you used to know this, right? You used to know this. Maybe there's some of you here that you could do the same thing. You could think back to when you were first a Christian, when you first came to Christ, and you knew this, and you felt this, and he's like, you could have that again, and that's what you need. You need to remember this. Guys, Jesus himself promised us no matter what we lose to follow him, he'll make it up to us. Remember Peter? Peter's like, Peter's like, Jesus, we've left our houses and everything to follow you. And Jesus said this, Truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or wife or brother or parent or child for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus is like, I'll pay you back. And look at the list, you know, has left wife, father, mother, you know, if, is, there a, is there a relationship you're being deprived of right now because you follow Jesus and it's just not a relationship you can have? He's going to pay you back, right? Is there some financial loss you've had because you've followed Jesus? He's going to pay you back, right? Is there Any losses? Guys, we know Jesus is good for it, right? He's not like that friend of yours, like, hey, can I borrow some money? I'll pay you back later. And you're just like, I'm just going to make this a gift because I don't want to hate you later. (laughs) Right? He's not like that, right? Jesus says, I'm going to pay you back. He's good for it. Is Jesus good for it? Has Jesus been good for it? He's good for it, right? Before you think your life would be a whole lot easier without Jesus, remember the hope you had. Remember how it used to hold you up. You know he's better. Even now you know. You know he's better than whatever you're tempted to. And you know he's good on his promises. And then he says, lastly, he says this. Hold on, it won't be that much longer. Which is true of the message, too. Hold on, it won't be that much longer. Look at verse 35. Look at how he pleads them. We could learn a thing or two from this whole passage on how to counsel a friend, couldn't we? With the different motivations and the different way he pleads. And just listen to these words. Imagine yourself saying these to someone. Imagine God saying this to you this morning. Therefore, persevere their souls. Guys, I know you're tired, right? I know you're tired of fighting your temptation. I know you're tired of the assaults of the enemy. I know you're tired of disappointments. I know you're tired of chronic pain. I know you're tired of mental health burdens you deal with. I know you're tired of people letting you down. I know you're just tired of striving, right? But here's the thing. He says here, "It, it won't be much longer. He says, in a little while, and the coming one will come. Guys, when we look at these next few decades or however long, much longer you have of obedience to Christ, as we look at those, they're going to seem so short 10 million years from now in the kingdom. Right? They're going to seem so short. It's all going to be so worth it. You've got a better possession and an abiding one. You've got a great reward. We're, we're going to wish, guys, that we gave him more. Okay? We're never going to be like, well, we overdid that. We're going to wish that we gave him more. Guys, shrinking back now would make no sense. No sense. You're right near the finish line. It really won't be that much longer. Jesus is coming soon. He says, yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay. Just hold on. Right? Trust in Him. Let's finish well. Let's pray. Father, we ask for that, Lord, that you would give us endurance or that you would so fill your people with your spirit even as we We're unpacking your word just now, Lord. I know that you are giving fresh strength, that you are giving fresh joy, that you are giving fresh hope to your people. And I just pray that you would solidify that, Lord. I pray that they would leave going out of here with confidence in you. Confidence that they want to hold on. Confidence, Lord, that they would do whatever you're calling them to do, whatever the cost. That if you're asking us to do something, we will do it. We pray, Lord, that you would f- keep filling us with that hope. The hope we have in your son, that we are covered with his righteousness, that we are awaiting a great reward, that we will see him soon, that we will see you soon, and that we will enjoy you forever. I pray, Lord, fill your people, Lord, make it an enduring encouragement. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at covegracemenifee.org. May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.